Hello, everybody. I'm Scott Burhang, and I would like to welcome you to a special section of the Fuel Buyer Summit. This is the seven proven steps to buying fuel smarter. I want to introduce myself to everybody. My name is Scott Burhang, and I've been in the business for 40 years. Um, I was recently VP of Client Relations and Education for a company that some of you have probably heard of. It's called Opus Oil Price Information Service. A lot of my career has been spent educating fuel buyers, large and small, on the best practices and how to purchase fuel. So what I'm going to do today is I'm going to spend some time with you and I'm going to share my seven proven steps to buying fuel smarter. So let's buckle down. There's a lot of stuff in here. We're going to make the, uh, there's going to be a PowerPoint that you can get later, which we'll make available to you. But I'm really excited to do this for you guys. Um, and one of the reasons why we want to talk about this is, is fuel buying is an extremely complex process. Markets have evolved through volatility, through changing fuel regulations. And what that's done is it's created a lot more challenges for fuel buyers. But at the same time, it's created a lot of fuel buying opportunities. For example, when prices fall, which they do, what it does is it gives rateable buyers a better negotiating posture with suppliers who find themselves with excess supply that they need to move. So in other words, a downfall in prices creates a good fuel buying opportunity. Buying formulas are changing fast. Now, I know a lot of you are familiar with cost plus, uh, but what's changing is the cost in that cost plus formula is now other things besides a rack price. But we're going to talk a little bit more about that later. But I hope you'll, you'll really pay attention to these seven steps which I've used many times that have been very successful for a lot of big fuel buyers, and they've seen a lot of very dramatic results for the better. But first, I mentioned before rateability, okay? If you're a fuel buyer that purchases large amounts of fuel, like asset-based carriers, both large and small, you are a rateable fuel buyer. What that means is that you get fuel deliveries or you purchase fuel multiple times a week often at multiple locations. Now, here's the thing. The more rateable you are as a fuel buyer, the more negotiating leverage you have with the supplier. Because the thing you have to remember is that suppliers need to move fuel. They don't want to keep fuel sitting there because fuel is a very complex, very much a moving target when it comes to prices. So the worst thing that can happen to somebody that's a fuel seller that stores fuel is the fuel that they have sitting in a tank devalues, which it can. So remember, the more you buy, the more rateable you are, the more of a negotiator you can become. And remember, transportation companies, asset-based, excuse me, asset-based fleets are among the most rateable fuel buyers in the industry. All right, so let's go. The seven steps to buying, to fuel buying success. Okay, step number one. Understand what I call the influence chain, how and why your fuel prices move up or down. Step two, understand your local market or markets. Know where they are, understand which pipelines they tie to, who the key suppliers are in those markets, and most importantly, what spot markets they tie to. Step number three, know the specifics of the fuel specs that are required in your market. Step number four, and this is the one we're going to spend a lot of time on because this is where people get really messed up. 
read your fuel contract. Update it, shorten it, understand it, and see if it spells out clearly what your fuel cost basis is. Okay? Step five, educate yourself. Get industry news. Look for articles about price movement and supply issues. Also, get yourself price discovery. Step six, reassess and reevaluate your fuel buying program. Remember, the more rateable, the better the deal. And finally, step seven, think about your business. Consider a hedging program to protect you against volatility in the fuel markets. That's critical. But let's go back to step one, understanding what I call the fuel price influence chain. It's really easy to understand. Now, when we make this slide available to you guys later on, you may want to bookmark this. You may want to print it out and have it sit by your desk or give it to the folks that are on your team that buy fuel. And basically, the first step in the fuel price influence chain is what we call the NYMEX. Okay, the NYMEX is a paper market. It's not a physical market, but it's influenced by regional and international factors. On a volatility scale of 1 to 10, the NYMEX is a 9. Changes in the NYMEX affect what we call spot markets. These are bulk markets, which we'll talk about in a little bit. So it's NYMEX to spot, then it's rack prices, which most of you are probably familiar with. Rack prices, most of the time, will change at 6 o'clock the same day. So it's NYMEX to spot to rack. And then finally, the last piece of the fuel influence chain is going to be the retail pump price. That's going to react later in most cases. Now, sometimes it may react right away, but most times it's going to be about a two or three day lag. All right. So let's break those up a little bit and look at each one. Let's start with the NYMEX because this is what gets people confused a lot. The NYMEX stands for the New York Mercantile Exchange. It's a futures or a paper market. It's not a physical market. It's regulated by the CFTC, which means very simply that the exchange guarantees performance. Fuel buyers identify their risk, which is usually price fluctuation. And what they'll do is they'll buy a futures contract, which is a financial instrument, to offset losses in their physical positions. So think about it this way. If you're hedging and your physical fuel price goes up, if you've hedged correctly, that additional cost from your basis will flow into a commodities account and you'll wind up being even. But the thing with this you got to remember, folks, is that the NYMEX is probably the single most influential part of the fuel price influence chain. Okay, so remember, it's NYMEX, then spot markets. What's a spot market? Now, there's spot markets in transportation. There's spot markets in fuel, okay? They're refining hubs. These are areas where there are refineries and they're, they're clustered in one space. It's areas where huge volumes of fuel are produced and they're traded in large volumes. So the way you have to think about this, everybody, is that these are usually one million gallon transactions. They're very, very large transactions. Spot markets have a direct relationship to the NYMEX futures market. We call that relationship basis. So as you get into buying fuel better and educate yourself, you'll hear that term basis. That's what we're talking about. The relationship between the futures market and the spot market is called basis. Okay, so as a smarter fuel buyer, 
you should identify not only which racks your products come from, but more importantly, understand which spot markets supply those racks. There are seven spot markets in the United States. The biggest one is the U.S. Gulf Coast, which is centered in Houston, Texas. Okay, Then you've got the New York Harbor spot market. You've got the Chicago spot market. You've got the Group 3 spot market. Those four spot markets are what we call the East of the Rockies markets. Now, let's go west. You've got the Los Angeles spot market. You've got the San Francisco spot market. And you've got the Pacific Northwest spot market. They're all separate, okay? The three West Coast markets will trade together, whereas the East of the Rockies markets trade separate from the West Coast, okay? So it's really easy to identify which of your seven markets your racks are tied to. All right, so let's go to the racks. All right, they're the third piece of the influence chain. Now, remember before when we were talking about spot prices, we were talking about the size of the transaction is usually 1 million gallons. Rack transactions are generally what we call truckload quantities, and they're about 8,000 gallons. They're much smaller, okay? When you look at a rack price, that price does not include taxes, nor does it include freight to get it from the terminal to the retail outlet, okay? So remember, changes in the NYMEX affect the spot markets, and then after that, the rack prices are the last step, okay? So if I'm somebody that works for a supplier, whether it's a refiner or whether it's a large jobber, all day long, I'm looking at the NYMEX, I'm looking at the spot markets, okay? Probably around 2 or 2.30 in the afternoon Eastern time, I look at that net change from day to day, and that's the change that I will probably implement to my rack price, okay? Pretty easy. It's really not that complicated, okay? Retail is the last piece of the influence chain, okay? Retail will lag behind, largely because there's a different set of dynamics with retail. Remember, there can be hypermarketers. There can be other factors involved in it. So when you think about the price influence chain, what happens every day is NYMEX to spot to rack. The very last piece of it, probably 48 or 72 hours later, is going to be retail. Okay, we talked about knowing your local markets. Let's spend a little bit of time talking about that. Identify your local market. In other words, the terminal where your fuel supply comes from. There's about 400 individual terminals or what we call racks where wholesale products are sold. The fuel that you buy comes from one or sometimes more of those locations. You need to find out which of those rack locations your fuel comes from, okay? Now, in some cases, like Chicago is a good example. There is a Chicago rack that has its own dynamics, but there are surrounding racks around Chicago that may not be more than 25 or 30 miles away that have completely different dynamics. So it's important to understand that. What I tell people is if you're not sure where your rack fuel comes from, go to your supplier and ask them. They should be able to tell you that. If you have a good relationship with your supplier and you're saying to them, look, I'm trying to educate myself, trying to become a better fuel buyer. If you ask those questions and they give you the answer, that's a great sign. If they, if they hesitate and they don't want to give you the answer and they're not happy that you're asking the questions, 
then that may be a problem, okay? But once you know those rack locations where your fuel comes from, contact a PRA provider like DTN or Opus and purchase price discovery for those locations. That's the first critical step in doing this better, okay? All right, another major reason to purchase price discovery, you wanna verify that the price being charged to you is correct. Or you want to see what other suppliers are charging and see if the price that your supplier is charging you is competitive. I can't tell you how many times in the course of my 40-year career of working with fuel buyers that people struggle to match the price up. A lot of times that's because they're not sure what price they're buying on. So verifying that price is going to be huge for you. It gives you that transparency and takes away that uncertainty about what fuel price you're getting on the invoice, okay? We talked about step three. Let's spend a little bit of time talking about understanding the fuel specs of your fuel markets. So let's go back to 1981 when I started in this industry. I know it's hard to believe that I'm, I don't look that old, right? <laughs> but there were only a few grades of gasoline or diesel fuel that fuel buyers needed to worry about, okay? If I was buying gasoline, all I had to worry about was regular, unleaded, or premium. If I was a diesel buyer, all I had to worry about was whether it was high sulfur or low sulfur, but not anymore. Now, we have what we call a very complicated boutique fuel slate. What does that mean? It simply means that there are many different kinds of gasolines and diesel fuels that are sold, and those vary from rack to rack based upon regulations. Each state has different regulations and they change all the time. So it's really important to understand what those fuel specs are because that will help you as you go to set up your contract. I keep talking about contracts. I can't focus on that enough. I want to spend a little bit more time on step four, which is read, understand, and possibly revamp your current fuel contract. I guarantee you that there are people watching this that are working off of contracts that are 10 or 15. In some cases, they may be 20 years old. They don't have correct language regarding what fuels are required. They don't spell out in the agreement what the price or cost basis is, okay? We used to call it the book, right? So think of it this way. You're going to have, in a fuel buying shop for a lot of end users, you're going to have a lot of churn of people that are going to go through and are going to be buying fuel. It's not uncommon to see the person buying fuel two months ago was buying paper clips or they were buying paper towels or they were filling up the coffee dispenser. Okay. Fuel is not pencils. It's not paper towels. It's not coffee. It changes all the time and it's a ginormous expense for people. So going back and finding that contract is pivotal. Go back and look at it. If you have questions, I'm going to give you my contact information when this is over. Feel free to contact me. I'm happy to help you with it. But short Cliff Notes version here, contracts should be updated. They should be revised. And the length of the contract should be reconsidered. If you're a readable buyer, you want a shorter term agreement. You don't want to tie it up in a 10-year agreement. An agreement should be two years or three years, or in some cases, it could be one year, okay? Think about your rateability. 
Okay. Remember we were talking about rateability. It's how much fuel you buy. Okay. So if you're going to rate yourself on a scale of one to 10, one being somebody that buys fuel every two weeks, 10 being somebody who gets multiple deliveries of fuel every day, that determines your rateability. Okay. So that's something you want to think about. But more importantly, does your contract spell out what benchmark or cost basis is being used for the fuel that you buy? Okay. Stay with me on this because think about it. All a benchmark is in a fuel contract is a price that's provided by a PRA. A PRA is a price reporting agency. And that price gets frozen and archived historically at a specific time each day. Now, generally, it's 10 o'clock in the morning Eastern time, it's 4.59 p.m. Eastern time, or 11.59 p.m. Eastern time. The industry as a whole has migrated toward that 10 o'clock average, which the PRAs call the daily contract average, okay? Very, very important because that contract average and that closing average can be different. Okay, and I could spend probably two weeks talking about why, but we don't have the time to do that today. But just trust me, the industry is moving to that contract average. Okay, now look at your language. There should be language in your agreement that spells out what you're paying for the fuel. For example, it should say something. Let's say that you're using Opus, okay, and you're using their contract average. It's real simple. It should just say, the cost of the ultra low sulfur on the date of delivery, delivery, excuse me, will be based on the Opus ultra low sulfur contract gross average for, let's say, Baltimore on the date of delivery. Done. There you go. So now you don't have to worry about it. If you go out on vacation for two weeks and you hand the book to somebody else, you don't have to worry about it. It spells it out. And if they need to verify it, all they have to do is they have to go to their Opus printout, boom, there it is, the contract average, okay? But if your contract doesn't have language similar to that, you need to get that agreement updated. You should also always have somebody in the legal field look at your contract, okay? Okay, so let's, we've been talking a little bit about PRA, but I just want to say this one more time. So if you're, if you're buying rack, which most of you do, because most of you probably buy on what we call cost plus, and you're selecting a benchmark as a cost basis. Again, you have that daily contract average, which is 10 a.m. Eastern time, the daily closing average, which is 4.59 p.m. Eastern time, the daily calendar average. I wouldn't even worry about the closing average. I wouldn't even worry about the calendar average. I would focus on that daily contract average, especially if you're going to rewrite the agreement. Okay, here's some other important things that I want you to think about. Remember when I said I was using that example about Baltimore and I said it should be in that in that language, it should say whether it's a gross price. Okay, when it comes to racks, you can have gross racks or you can have net racks. Gross and net refers to two things. It can refer to prompt payment or it can refer to temperature correction. Okay, let's, let's take temperature correction out of it for right now. Let's focus on that prepayment, prompt payment, excuse me. So what it means is if I pay within a certain period of time, 1%, or it can be 1.25%, it can be 1.5%, a 
comes off the price if I make that payment within that specified period of time. Okay. Now, when you buy the price discovery from the PRAs, they'll ask you, do you want a gross price or do you want a net price? Okay. So now I know the wheels are starting to click, right? You're thinking to yourself, wait a minute, if I'm buying on a gross basis, why shouldn't my supplier pass that 1% or that 1.25 or that 1.5% benefit along to me? Okay. That is a reasonable question. The answer to that is it's how well you can negotiate. And again, that ties back to your rateability. If you're very, very rateable, you can ask for that. You can say, look, you know, I, who do you buy from? You buy from XYZ supplier. I see in my Opus price discovery that they are a gross biller, which means that they're giving the supplier the 1%. How come you're not passing it along to me? I'm a great customer. You can ask those questions. There's nothing wrong with asking it. They may say no, because what they may say to you is that 1% or that 1.25 or that 1.5, that's a cost of doing business for me. So don't be alarmed if they say no. I've seen it happen both ways, okay? Very, very, very rateable buyers will typically get all or part of that discount back to them. But if you're kind of small, then you're probably not going to get it. But it's something you should be familiar with, and that should be in your contract. All right, so I want to just take a second here and give you a breakdown on really the three major types of fuel supply agreements, okay? First one is what we call branded contract, all right? Unless you have retail, unless you have a retail station or you have a truck stop or whatever, you're probably not buying on a branded contract. So let's go to the next one, which is the most common for most people, I think, probably on this call, which is called an unbranded contract, okay? This is very, very common among end users that have to have fuel, but they don't have retail. Fuel's not their business, Okay. Here's another thing and another way to look at it. Ask yourself, is fuel a revenue center for you or is it a cost center for you? I think for most people that are here today, probably a cost center, okay? So you're not in the retail fuel business, but your contract as an unbranded contract should have specific volumes in it. So how much you're agreeing to buy, it should have a firm start and a firm end date. But most importantly, it's going to have it's going to spell out in there what your cost basis is. My cost basis is the Baltimore Ultra Low Sulfur Gross Opus Contract Rack Price. My buying price is the Ultra Low Sulfur Salt Lake City Contract Gross DTN Price, whatever it is. Okay, that's important. The third type of agreement is what we call an open rack. That means I don't have a contract. I don't have a contract at all. I play the market. So I used to work with customers that were very, very non-rateable buyers, and they didn't want a contract. They felt very comfortable that they would just get fuel when they needed it. Sometimes they might have a problem. So the thing to think about is with open rack, if there's a disruption in supply, like we had recently with that whole colonial pipeline situation, if there's something like that, Open rack people are going to get cut off. They're not going to have access to the fuel. So I would say for most people, you should have that unbranded contract. One very important thing here, everybody, think about how much fuel you buy, okay? The last thing you want to do is commit to buying more fuel than you need because your agreement 
is going to have what we call underlifting or overlifting penalties, and they can be very substantial. So you want to think through that, okay? I've had people who've said, oh, my volumes are getting bigger and bigger and bigger. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to double the size of my contract. Well, you know, things like pandemics happen and things like that. So that can have a big effect on this. So please err on the side of being conservative. Your supplier will love you if you ask to buy more fuel as long as they have it. So it's important to see what that market is. Okay. But be conservative in what you commit to. Okay, so we've talked about the contract. Now I just want to talk a little bit about step five. Educate yourself. Listen, when I was at Opus, I, I taught many, many people how to analyze petroleum markets, how to break down trends, and ultimately how to buy fuel. The best thing you can do is to purchase a basic news feed from one of the PRA providers. It's not that expensive. It really is not that expensive. Keep yourself abreast of what's going on. The things you want to focus on in that news are going to be refinery problems. So remember before I said it's important to understand what spot market your fuel comes from. So I'm, I'm in Maryland. I live right outside Washington, D.C. So I know that the fuel that comes into my market comes out of Baltimore. I know that Baltimore is tied to the U.S. Gulf Coast. Okay. So what I look at when I read news every day is, are there any refinery problems in the Gulf Coast? Is there any issue with production? Are there turnarounds? What's going on that could affect me? So the things you really want to look for, refinery problems, which in the news are called turnarounds. You want to look for pipeline issues. And you also want to look at analysis for changes in pricing trends. It's, it's key. And honestly, it really doesn't have to be more than 10 minutes a day. If you give yourself 10 minutes a day to read up on that as a fuel buyer, you'll be amazed at how much smarter you'll become and how you'll, how you'll buy better, okay? Understanding that continuity, asking yourself when you walk into the office on a Wednesday, let's say, what happened in the market on Tuesday? Oh, right, the market went up. It went up because there were three refinery problems in the Gulf Coast, or there was a pipeline disruption in Chicago, or whatever, okay? Or there was, God forbid, an earthquake in California, or something like that, okay? Those are the kinds of things, if you ask yourself that, you'll get ahead of the markets, okay? Step six, we talked about reevaluating your fuel buying program. Everybody should look at their fuel buying program, especially if you're somebody that's new to buying fuel for your company, okay? Because I guarantee you, that you're probably buying fuel the way the person before you bought it, the person before him or her, and so forth and so on. This is classic, folks. It's classic. It happens all the time. Can you buy fuel better? Yes, but I'm going to hammer this in once again. It all goes back to rateability. Rateability, rateability, rateability. It's king, okay? The more fuel you buy, the more negotiating posture you're gonna have with your supplier or your suppliers, okay? You should also familiarize yourself with who the suppliers are in your market, okay? When you get that price discovery and you go down the left-hand side of the page and you see all the, the suppliers, you'll see ExxonMobil, Chevron, or you'll see whoever it is, or Valero or whatever, you know, know who the suppliers are. And if your rateability is getting bigger, then you know what? You want to talk to other suppliers. You can always shop it out, but it really all goes back to rateability. Okay. 
And I just want to take a second to talk a little bit about fuel buying formulas, okay? As we've been talking about it a little bit. So most of you are probably familiar with something that is known as cost plus, okay? What it is, it's the most basic fuel buying formula. It uses a rack as a basis. So let's say it's the Baltimore rack, okay? Then adds a negotiated markup or plus, negotiated being the operative word, and that becomes my buying formula. So when I take my truck and I go to fuel it up and I swipe my card, instead of paying the retail price, what I'm paying is that formula price plus all the taxes. At the end of the day, I'm probably going to come in below that posted price. Okay. Now, that's the most common way to do it. What the industry is starting to see is what we call spot plus. This is also called index-based pricing. So instead of using that Atlanta rack or that Baltimore rack or whatever the rack is, I'm now using the Gulf Coast spot price or I'm using the Group 3 spot price or I'm using something else, okay? But it's going to be a spot price. Now, the thing with that is there's two things. That's going to be extremely volatile because spot prices are going to fluctuate a lot more than rack prices will. And don't do this if you don't have some type of price discovery, like a spot ticker that shows you what the spot market is doing every day. Because if you if you do this blindly, you're going to have a day where your, your price is going to go up by 10 or 15 cents a gallon. And you're going to be like, oh my God, what just happened here? So you want to be careful. Some of the more complicated formulas are things like basket of suppliers. Okay. It's another formula. So the buyer and the seller decide upon a specific number. It could be two suppliers, three or four, and base their buying price on the average of those suppliers. Usually the way that works is that basket of suppliers has to beat that contract average by a specific amount that you have to negotiate. Okay, so it gets a little complicated. Same thing with a low two, low three or four. I can use the low two, low three or low four suppliers in a market. Okay, but you want to be careful with that because sometimes the low suppliers in those market have limited supplies. Okay, I'm going to suggest to everybody that if you do a formula that's something different than cost plus or a basic, you know, my price is the contract average. You want to have the infrastructure in your company to do it. The more complicated you make it, the harder it's going to be for you to go on vacation. So I think the last thing you want to do is go on vacation to Cancun, sit by the pool, have a couple of margaritas, and you're like, oh, my God, does this person I left by in the office have any clue what I'm doing? So, you know, keep it simple, okay? If you do have a pretty big buying shop and you invest in software, software can do all of this for you. Okay, so that's another question you have to ask yourself. Here's another thing that's very, very important. If you're going to do a formula deal, you always want to go back and purchase history. Okay, you want to see what that relationship, there's lots of different relationships you want to look at. If I'm doing a spot plus, I want to go back. I want to look at what the spot market for ultra low sulfur was in the Gulf Coast versus Baltimore ultra low sulfur rack for a period of a year. You don't have to go back and buy 20 years of history. Yeah, you don't have to do that. No more than two years of history, folks. That, that'll do the job for you, okay? So if you have an index-based spot deal, you have to remember that PRAs have different methodologies. So just real quickly, because again, I could spend a lot of time talking about this, Opus, 
and Argus have a full day range. Platts uses a 30 minute window. I'm not gonna spend a lot of time talking about that today because it's a lot, but you can always call me and I can explain that to you, okay? We will be providing a link for you guys to pull down the slides for future reference. If you wanna reach me, you can reach me at sburhang at freightwaves.com. I'm happy to have you call me, please call me. I'm happy to talk to you. My direct line is 240-994-9200. This has been a pleasure. I, I hope that my seven steps are helpful. Thank you very much and stay tuned for more of the Fuel Buying Summit.